Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stefo Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. Okay, Annie, I have a question for you. And we've talked about it before, and I don't know if you actually have one that we don't know about. But I'm still going to ask, in the deepest, darkest, secretest of secrets, what (laughs) is one of your true, true guilty pleasures that we, your friends, might not exactly know about or know fully about? Wow, you're going for the deep, dark secrets. Yeah, yeah. I feel I feel like I'm pretty open about my enjoyments. I know. That's why I said this. <sighs> I think, as we've recently discussed, it's not really a deep, dark secret, but perhaps like that I do actually read and write romance, which is, I think is just something I was surprised by, but I was finally like, wait a minute. And my fan fiction predilections probably surprise some people because I think they know the basics. Mm-hmm. They don't know the specifics. So I do read like Slash, um, yeah. even though I'm there for the emotion. But I think that surprises some people because they're like, wait a minute, you're, you're so against romance. Well, you're not against it. It's just not my thing. Right, right. And then I read a lot of, I read a lot of angsty things, but I read a lot of like recovery. I read a lot of like healing, dramatic recovery stories. All right. Um, which I think... I think some people, when I tell them I like angst, they think it's just sad, 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 and that's the end. Yeah. But it, it's got a, usually it's got some kind of like recovery, healing, comfort element. Uh, again, like I don't think I've been super secretive about this. It's just like, I usually am pretty broad about it. Right. <laughs> but I did have this conversation with some of my friends who read fan fiction lately, and they were like, wait, you read that? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so you surprise them. You continue yes. to surprise in I do. I do. I'll try to think of, because I'm sure there's something else. I've read some pretty dark stuff, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I've read some, like, modern AU uh, alternate universe serial killer stuff, which is relative to what we're talking about today. I've read some, some, in quotes, strange, dark things. Yeah. Uh, I find that interesting. That you automatically, when you think of guilty pleasures, you think of fan fiction, no matter yes. what, no matter what. And I, I like that. For me, I have some like interesting things where I have ritualistic things almost, but where I wake up in the morning, I come and get my coffee. Like the first thing I do is make coffee, go take peaches out, come back upstairs, and then I will sit in the dark on the corner of my couch have my coffee ready to go, curl up in a ball and just play like a couple of my phone games that I really love. And of course, I found a new one that I'm playing and I'll just sit there in silence and we'll do this for a good two hours, which probably is not the greatest for being a phone addict as I am. And I've realized I've become really bad about it. But that's one of my things that I do, complete silence. I don't even Mm -hmm. like, and I need noise to typically distract me so that I don't feel so alone or empty. These moments in the morning, I don't do that. And I was like, huh, that's an interesting, interesting thing. But then also when I watch TV or when I watch Mm -hmm. series and I watch them on repeat, y'all, I think we all know this, 
my deep pleasure is to try to find the actor and connect them to the other episodes. So I am very quick to like look up and then go down these rabbit holes of who belongs to what. And I love mm-hmm. it. And I don't ever remember their name. I just know their face. And then I'm like, that's from this show. That dude's from that show. And connecting mm-hmm. like the universes that way. And I don't mm-hmm. know if that's a guilty pleasure or something that I definitely do that's like, that's weird. Okay, that's odd, but I love it. But then I also have other like really big, uh, like I love just sitting in bed all day. Sure. Mm -hmm. Just being like the other day when it was snowing here, I sat in my bed all day because it was so Mm -hmm. cold. I refused to get out of the bed. And had Uh everything around me. I ate soup in my like bed, everything. Like that's part of my guilty pleasure. I also saw there was a neurodivergent thing that I was like, maybe I need to go and look this up where I just kind of like, if I've had overwhelming things happen, I have to stay in my bed for a day. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. huh, this doesn't feel very adultish of me. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've actually had that thought a lot lately too, where I'm like, I don't, a lot of things I do don't feel adult. And then I get in an argument with myself about does that matter? And what does that mean? And should I worry about that? So I, I understand. I've had I've had debates in my mind about that. I've also, I think I mentioned, I've started going, I have a, a galaxy projector. So I have started, like I'll lay in bed and watch the galaxy projector and listen to classical music and read fan fiction. And that feels like the most indulgent thing I've allowed myself to do in a long time. That sounds nice though. <laughs> it was so, it's so nice. I'm so happy when it, like, I'm like, okay, tonight, I'm going to devote at least one hour because I time it on the galaxy projector turns off automatically. So I sort of time it. But it does feel very, very nice. It feels like I'm carving out a space because I'm really bad about just indulging in a guilty pleasure. I'm I, I'm always like, you should be doing this. Right, right. I get so that. So it's, it's nice. I'm trying to like really carve out the space for like for this one hour Forget about that. Right. It is about doing this thing that you find really relaxing and really rejuvenating. Yeah. And you know what? We do need to come back and talk about why the term guilty pleasure is such a double-edged sword. (laughs) And it is really unfair to those who are so busy and so caught up in being in a world of busy that we forget to take time for ourselves, which we love. So that term in itself is really negating of what we truly need and whether or not we enjoy it as long as it's, you know, not harming anybody. Why not? Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. But the reason that we are talking about guilty pleasures, another one of my guilty pleasures has been going down the dark hole of serial killers or true crime-related things like SVU and Criminal Minds, which all play off of real stories, and you get a different version, but it's really kind of dark in itself. And we did want to talk about this, but first, yes, obviously we're going to be talking about a little bit about the horrifics of uh, killing murder victims and trauma within that. We're not going to go into specific cases. We're definitely not going to delve into what happened or any of those stories. We are just mentioning it. So just go ahead and put that at the top. And yeah, we've talked a lot about true crime and its overall popularity, especially for women. In fact, one study shows that women make up around 70% of the listenership slash viewership for this genre. So yes, women are all involved. And of course, we if you want to hear more about that statistic, we have a couple of episodes for you to check out. 
don't we, Annie? And we go all into it. Uh, yes. it, is kind of, it fascinates. I'm one of those that I'm more fascinated by the why and the who, more so than mm-hmm. the actual subject. So, yes, we went into that. Mm-hmm. And we also mentioned the overall impact for the audience as, as well as why women are so interested in it, including that many listeners, they listen so they can prevent it from happening to them or at least not be in that situation, which obviously most of the time there's nothing you can do about it. It just happens to happen. Yeah which is really sucky. Mm -hmm. But for me, again, as to the who or the why, I was like, there has to be more to this, right? There has to be more to why we are so fascinated, and specifically women, why we are so caught up in this. Um, I mean, it's been around since Jack the Ripper. So the old school, old school case, which, by the way, was often portrayed to people through comics and drawings, uh, since many people could not read at the time. So it was depicted and told through Literally, they said uh, comic strips is how they put it. Wow. (laughs) I wonder if that's why it had such a lasting impact on our Mm -hmm. culture. That's interesting. Maybe, because those pictures are, like, I I know those pictures. When we think about Mm -hmm. it, we see those black and white, like, horrible pictures. Uh, But, yeah, that's how it was often relayed. And the morbid fascination, obviously, has only grown as the different mediums have been created to tell these stories, and it's not just stories, and that's kind of what we're going to come back to. Um, and Annie, one thing I've, I've been really uh, personally sh- struggling with is what about the victims? I- I've worked with so many victims. I've worked with so many survivors who've gone through horrific abuse and trauma. That that's what I know. That's what I see. And I have to wonder. I'm like, you and I had this conversation. I'm like, what about them? I wonder how they see this in this perspective when we talk about it, or when it's grown to be in such popular conversation and it is almost I mean I don't think this is true to all of the people who listen but almost like it's fetishized in a way yeah. you know yeah I think we've we've talked about that a lot of the uh I immediately obviously I don't know I think of conjuring three which has that weird moment where it's like based on a true story but it's based on a true story in a way where we're supposed to I guess sympathize, empathize with the killer who was possessed. Right. But those are real people. I mean, even if they dramatized it, like, they are real people who are, you know, perhaps encountering people's theories or thoughts about who did it and why they did it and maybe romanticizing an aspect of it. And I... I know I've mentioned it before, but there was an essay I read by somebody whose family had been murdered by a serial killer and she'd seen and heard these kind of documentaries and podcasts about it, and people kind of excited to talk about it. She she was understanding. She wasn't like, that shit, but she, she was yeah. saying, like, it was so odd to her because it actually happened to her and it, how it impacted her kind of processing of things and confused her processing of things. And ult- it was a really beautiful essay. I wish I could find it again, but ultimately she ended up meeting the serial killer and kind of forgiving him. And again, that's not... I feel like forgiveness gets thrown around as like, that is the best thing and it means you're a good person. I don't think it means that at all. But she was able to come to peace. Like she... Right. Personally. But she talked about that. She talked about the impact of having people talk about it. Right. And confuse her about like motives and (laughs) deserving and all that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, and I know we want to talk about it, but I think we do have a podcast on our network where the family member of a serial killer talks about their experience and what they went through and the trauma they went through. And I I want to come back and revisit that because oftentimes we hear the perspective from, because typically serial killers are men, by the wife or the daughters or the families. And I think it's an interesting perspective in that we understand not humanizing them necessarily, the killers, but the families Mm -hmm. who also get caught up in the darkness of what is happening. And they are also traumatized, but that's a whole different story. But talking about, as I'm thinking about what about the victims, what about the victims' families, of course, there was a TikTok video that popped up into my feed. It was like, hey, Samantha, you're talking about this. We know, we spy, here you go. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They were talking about their experience uh, in seeing this into a documentary true crime thing. Um, And it was Jordan Preston who is on TikTok and her video, which was uh, kind of a part of a trend that's been happening about, you know, you think you can hurt me? Well, this happened to me. There's no way you can hurt me kind of trend that's been happening. Uh And it's like taking up, kind of just taking up their own trauma and be like, hey, I've been through worse, you know, type of thing and just claiming it, I guess. Um, But in this trend, uh, she addressed how she and her family felt about an episode uh, that was based on her sister's murder. In the actual uh, TikTok clip, it says, uh, it shows her and there's a writing. It says, you think you can hurt me, but Hulu just released a documentary about how my sister was brutally murdered without our family's consent. And yeah, that's that big question of like, what about the families who's consenting to this? Because I've seen so many documentaries where the families were not involved in talking about it. Oftentimes it's just the police and it's often just like found footage type of thing and recordings. And I'm like, what What about them? And yeah, it, the big question within her talking about it is, you know, I know it's not against the law, but is it, it's immoral. And, and why would you do this? Is it ethical for yeah. anyone to capitalize on something that they are not giving consent to when it was so personal to them? And how do we, as viewers, but also conscientious feminist advocates, hold ourselves to a better standard when it comes to these types of genres, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a good, it's a good question. And I, there's... Oh gosh, I have so many thoughts about this because there's a, there's the we talked about kind of the women who fall in love with these serial killers. Right. We talked about that. We've also talked about um the women who have been impacted by that and by serial killers and I think just even the fact that this content is seemingly a majority of women is are consuming it and we yeah, like you said it's a lot of experts think that's because we're facing these things or worried about these things all the time and we're trying to learn what not to do to not be that person even though it's really out of your control. It's a, it's kind of a way to give us a sense of control. It is hard because there's just all these pieces that are all messy and they all have like multiple nuanced reasons why they're happening because I get why people like true crime. I get why people whose families are like not even getting consent and having their story told. That's totally legit. You'd be mad. Like there's just so many right. pieces. There's so many things at play. Um, and honestly, one of the big things about this is that true crime has become a moneymaker. Uh, which whenever we put money into this, there's so many things that you automatically like the motive is really wrong in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Fame and money. But... Don't ask us how much. 
Because we can't find those numbers. I cannot Mm -hmm. quite find any of these numbers. There's a little bit of debate at one point in time. The makers of Making of a Murderer, the big Netflix special that happened, uh, they were getting a pretty good amount of money uh, before Joe Rogan's deal with Spotify. He was one of the highest you know, mm. money makers for for podcasters, they were actually comparing themselves. That the money they were making was comparable to his um, amount of money as well. So that's pretty high up there in itself. And then they went on to try to do a second one, and they got a lot of backlash. So I think they stopped because they were like, "Look, you're really, really doing something really ugly." And so they backed off. Again, though, theirs was a little bit different because they were able to prove some concern about the validity of the confessions. So that's a whole other conversation we're going to come back to. But shows like that and shows like uh, I, am a, I Am a Killer, which is like one of the specials, which is like a series. Confessions mm-hmm. of a Killer, which is also a little series. Uh, Tiger King, which is not necessarily a series, but they have a two-part, second-parter, mm-hmm. have made huge waves in viewerships and made networks like Netflix and Hulu a lot of money. Again, I don't know how much because they do their subscriptions. Everything's based on views. We know this, but at whose expense? We already know that Carol Baskins, who was one of the features on uh, Tiger King was not happy, was not (laughs) happy with how she was portrayed. And she talked about she had been misled and she tried to pull out of it because she realized what was happening. They were making her look really bad. I mean, for sure, editing in that. But then also she kind of came into the limelight. She was with Dancing with the Stars. She's been featured in uh, some music videos with some stars. Like her name is known. So she's made a little bit of an acclaim for herself. I think uh, her business has gone up, even though there's like a lot of question about the validity of really, are they actually rescuing animals or are they just keeping animals in captivity? What's happening Mm -hmm. type of conversation. Um, I know that she, I think he's a, is suing. Uh, Yeah, I think so. For the second Tiger King one, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah, like that. But we also know that several big questions come to when serial killers can actually sell their own content. Sure. And we've talked about that as well previously. As in fact, the dudes from The Making of the Murderer, the oldest man, I can't remember his name. I'm not I'm not even highlighting y'all, the mm-hmm. killers or perpetrators in this. But he made money by selling off memorabilia in order to get uh, some help and more legal counseling. And if that's, if that's what's happening, great, I guess. Yeah, sure. Because we know not all counsel is created equal. Maybe they didn't get the representation they needed. But stuff like that, when you see that, apparently O.J. Simpson's friend made money off of him by uh, doing a 1-900 number. Wow. Sharing his stories, quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah. We have different things like that. We know, like, yeah, things being stolen from crime scenes and resold as that. Life stories being sold and marketed to, like, Lifetime and all of, like, all of these different things are happening. And it definitely is, like, a cringe, ugh. Mm Mm-hmm. To me, um, so the way that it's making money, I don't know. Um, again, Preston talking about her documentary, she had, they had nothing to do with it, and they had no say. So this person came in and uh, did this documentary, and kind of made a name for themselves by mm-hmm. taking content that wasn't necessarily hers, but public information. Yeah, and that's exactly what she talks about: is that the the making of the documentary for the sister, uh, the special as it describes, has been a sort of murder mystery the way they set Mm -hmm. it up, where they try to make it seem that the accused was innocent due to them having a sleep disorder. So automatically, as a family of a victim, you don't want to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, and I I think that's one of the things that 
is fresh. I've actually been thinking about this quite a bit lately for reasons that will come clear in future podcasts. <laughs> but like, I I feel like we're so ready to romanticize, forgive, and and feel sorry for the abuse a male serial killer, in this case, has gone through. Which I'm not saying we shouldn't say like abuse is bad or was part of this, but we're so ready to be like, oh, poor thing almost. Like, wow, I understand. And the mostly female victims in their orbit are little more than just like, uh, him acting out his trauma and his trauma trumps her trauma and all of the other people's trauma around yeah. her. Yeah. Like, she's just a, kind of a side piece in his tragic, right, flawed existence. Right. I don't know much about the case. I didn't look into it. I didn't want to watch the documentary after seeing her plea to not watch it. So I was like, I will respect that. Mm-hmm. That though, There is a question. Absolutely. When we talk about past trauma, abuse, all of that, how that can play into a factor. But we also have talked about, when we talked about mass shooters, that it's too quick to people be like mental health. And that's mm-hmm. a very ableist conversation. Just because you have a mental health doesn't mean you're dangerous. And these narratives flip to that point. And mm-hmm. that's that's very ableist and absolutely wrong in every way. Like, that, okay, yes, they may have uh, a mental health issue that we need to talk about. And that was there, but that is not the cause. So let's just go ahead and empty that out. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of that bigger conversation is also who are we looking to sympathize with? Typically, they're the white killers, like the white cis male, whatever, mm-hmm. that are the ones who are to be sympathized with. And that's, again, that bigger conversation of like, this is all very ableist in its way. Who's being seen as, oh no, we feel sorry for them, all of that. And she also talks about how had had the show, knowing that, that they were making the show all about him, automatically was like, no, we don't want to see this. We've already had to go sure. through trial for this. But had it been a story about how amazing her sister was and highlighting who right. she was and what she should have been able to do and getting justice for her, then they would have participated. As in fact, I believe they have a deal, the family has a deal with another maker who wants to talk about the sister. And that is mm-hmm. that is wonderful. That I get that, that you want to remember your sister. And by the way, which... Leads to another question. So, what about the survivors who are retelling mm-hmm. their story? Of course, I guess they have to have consented to a point, right? But what kind of impact does it have for them to sit in an interview chair, being drilled about one of the most horrific experiences they've ever had, and then be judged by viewers who are often given an edited version of the story? And typically, I will say, I hope. The ones that I've seen, they give allowance for sympathy to the victims, to the survivors. But at the same time, we still know they're trying to make it a good story. So they want the gory details. They want to go really deep into the things. How did you feel? Like they want to traumatize them more on TV Mm -hmm. to get that good feed. Right. They want the the tears and the emotions so people will tune in and be like, whoa, so powerful. (laughs) Right. And I know part of that could be like, you don't have to go on. But how else do you get control of that story then? Right. It's yep. almost like they're pushed into a corner to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree because it's... Oh, gosh. How exhausting it must be to have gone through this traumatic thing and then people, that's what they know you for and that's what they keep contacting you for. So purposely, you're always reminded of it. And then you know if you don't say anything that people are going to take that as a message in itself, even if it's just you trying to protect your own... Right. Mental health. <laughs> right.
Oh man, and then, and then the common link as we were researching is the continued trauma that affects the entire family who has lost a dear loved one, which impacts them. I, I don't know if we've talked about, but that, that's been talked about how divorces happen, separations mm-hmm. happen, um, a lot of you know trauma related mental health issues happen, like so many things. And not only that, but we often are told all of the secrets of not only the family, but the lives of the victims and all around them. I mean, I would be horrified if someone knew every detail of my life in every way and then just shredded it and pushed it all out. I mean, obviously the victim blaming in itself is what it goes to. But then if you are a victim or the family of the victim not wanting to share all of these things and it's just out there for everyone to see. And again, (laughs) the families do not have control over the narrative that is being shared, which adds even more trauma. Yeah, for sure. Like, I'm thinking of, like, I don't watch True Crime often, but I'm thinking of past things I've watched where it's like, she went out and she was known to drink and sometimes right. flirt. And they definitely will paint it in a way where you're like, well, this is very victim blamey. Yeah. But they do it in such a way where I think they're trying to build the mystery of what happened, but all it really does is feel very victim blamey to me. <laughs> it is. And that's the other part. It's like the conversations. And I know when it comes to uh, investigations and things like that, you have to go clinical. You have to go almost like factual in every way. Mm-hmm. And so things like terms like high risk, low risk victims. So literally like, oh, you put yourself in this high risk situation. So yeah, you're more likely to get murdered. And that's frank and to the point, I guess, but is it better? Is it a great narrative? Is that what you would want to hear about your family member? Hell no. No. <laughs> yes, yeah. I'm a single woman living alone, so I'm def- therefore high risk. <laughs> what? Right, right, right. I did not have any control over that. And just, you know, when you lose someone, you, you think of all the like, but they don't know this about this person or they don't know right. this. Like, it's such a like dramatized for the building of this mystery that there's like there's just so much left out of who that person was and uh that would be highly upsetting for sure right you know uh but not all feel that way not all family members feel this way not all uh survivors feel this way some feel that at the very least at least people are still talking about the the cases that's not been solved well, that was one of the things about the Gabby Petito's case is that if had they not talked about it as much, maybe they would never have solved it. They would never have found her, um, which again led to the fact of, then why aren't we talking about everybody else who's missing that's unsolved, right. uh, that is a cold case. And that that's exactly the point. Not only that they're talking about it, but they're bringing it back to light. Uh, is in fact, in cases of uh, shows like Unsolved Mysteries or the Most Wanted, which, did you watch any of those? Those horrified me. Nope. <laughs> I watched no. it and I was scared. Of course, mm. the Unsolved Mysteries also had alien abductions and ooh, oh. ooh, ooh, Okay, yeah, yeah. Ooh, no, yeah. too much. <laughs> so, but the families feel that at the very, at least there are some who are still trying to find justice, trying to get answers. Um, and according to the creator of the reboot of Unsolved Mysteries, which is back on Netflix, uh, the original, which ran for 29 years, like, a long time, uh, that helps solve over 260 cold cases during their time, uh, while shows like um, Jinx, which is about 
Durst, Robert Durst, I believe, mm-hmm. and Most Wanted helped get uh, arrests of very infamous criminals that people didn't even know were out there, but mm-hmm. highlighted it. And they were able to uh, get some type of conviction, some type of arrest. Um, they had gotten some proof about it. There are other shows they're talking about that they helped solve, like, another 100 unsolved cases. And, and and so things like that do come to light, and people are very grateful to have stories like that, but still does kind of linger into viewership and monetization and what does that look like. And I know there's a co- couple of questions like, uh, who is it going after and what? how does the narrative happen? Is it biased to make you believe someone's guilty or believe someone's not guilty? Who knows? And of course, as viewers like myself, we have to be careful. I know I know that we are talking about it. And obviously, I am very, very, very guilty of leaning into these a little too hard. I told you I really like Snapped. But it does. I'm like, I'm sure there's a sexist bit in here that I'm not paying attention to because I've just caught up. And at the mm-hmm. same time, I'm sometimes like, yeah, I'm going to snap too. Let's go. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, bringing light to the fact that why are we so obsessed with these conversations and these stories? Is it because we want to, again, protect ourselves? Is it because we want to make ourselves feel better? At least we're not in that situation, which is yeah. really kind of gross in itself. And I get that too. But that we have to remember that it isn't just an entertainment source, you know? Yeah, I, I think that's really, really important. And that's been a conversation in um, the podcasting world that we've experienced because right. it's, I guess, respectfulness is the key, I would right. say. Like, definitely, it's not that we shouldn't tell these stories, but we should do them respectfully and hopefully with consent of, I mean, in my world, with the consent of people who were directly involved and with their uh, I don't know if cooperation is the right word, but like they're the people to ask. Right. Yeah, to just do it in a way that is the least harmful and the most helpful. Right. Yeah, we have to be responsible on how something is consumed mm-hmm. and who are the ones that are making the money and benefit- exactly. benefiting yep. from it. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Ugh. Oh, gosh. There's so much... So much stuff to unpack in this. So many things that I'm like, we should talk about this later. I love how these, our Monday minis are getting off the chain. Um, <laughs> it really <laughs> has. <laughs> we can't help it. We got so many thoughts. And if you have thoughts, listeners, we would love to hear them. You can email us at stephaniamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast or on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You. Thanks as always to our super producer, Christina. Thank you. Yes. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I've Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.